Shalom everybody, I'm Liel K. Bridgeford and this is Unmarginalized. Before we jump in, please note that the following episode contains discussions about mental health, the Holocaust, trauma, ableism and transphobia. So please take care as you listen and check out our show notes for support options. Today on the podcast, I have Sonia Plitt. Sonia is a queer parent, student of the Associate Degree in Writing and Editing at RMIT and an emerging writer. Their work includes themes on intergenerational trauma, substance dependence, religious oppression, gender and mental health. Sonia's writing has been highly commended in the Victorian Premier Literary Award, shortlisted in the Odyssey House Short Story Competition and published in the Darabin Enscribe magazine. Welcome Sonia. Thank you, Leel. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. The introduction kind of touched on a few of those things, but can you start by telling us what intersections of identity do you navigate? Sure. Um, So queer was one that you mentioned. There are a few subheadings under that. So pansexual is one. Uh, For people who aren't familiar with that term, it's the romantic, emotional or sexual attraction to people regardless of gender. So it could be um, it could be a man, woman, trans uh, woman, trans man, non-binary person. Uh, gender doesn't play a role in um, that that aspect of my uh, attraction. Um, I'm also polyamorous, uh, which is um, which again is outside the the normal. Um, monogamous um, uh, majority I have I can have multiple partners I currently don't have any but, <laughs> yeah, but fair uh, I, yeah I see love as um, sort of a, a non-ownership style love in under polyamorous I'm also non-binary um, and specifically agender so I don't experience having a gender um, also agnostic. This this list goes on. We'll have to cherry pick <laughs> which ones we talk about. Uh, but um, so agnostic. Um, I also uh, navigate uh, complex trauma that um, creates uh, experience mental distress, um, and I've described it in a particular way because I don't really like labels. So we can talk about that as well if you like. But that's that's sort of. Um, the initial list and uh yeah we can talk about whichever ones you prefer sure well thank you for sharing that's definitely um that is definitely an impressive list and i'm very <laughs> glad that we can kind of talk about all those things um i'd love to start with maybe more generally if you can kind of explain how navigating all these intersections kind of impact your life you know can we start there with a bit of an explanation of or some examples about how that comes about in your life navigating all those identities um sure well it 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 is very complicated i find i have a lot of balls in the air and um that i think because there are so many different intersections that actually impacts my uh, mental well-being quite frequently so uh, it will elevate my it can elevate my stress levels so um, sort of a sense of generally not fitting in anywhere um, because there are so many different intersections uh, is something that um, yeah, that really impacts my my mental health. So I'm just trying to think of, I think of an example. Um, so 
um, being being queer, I'm part of the LGBTI uh, community, but um, being polyamorous, for example, most um, uh, people in the queer community are monogamous. So okay. it sort of further marginalises me within a marginalised group uh, and that impacts my mental health and other things. So um, it can get really complicated. That sense of not fitting in anywhere is something that so many of my guests have described in lots of different ways and that sense of kind of being marginalised within a marginalised group can be so complicated. Um, and I'd love to hear about sort of, I guess, how do you handle it then? I mean, you know, it increases your stress, feeling like you're not fitting in sort of anywhere because you're kind of in the margins and on the margins of the margins. How do you, what helps you? To deal with it? Uh, I was just actually thinking about um, the poem that I wrote, um, Bearded Lady in Enscribe, and thinking about, um, you know, this idea of, uh, I wrote in that about, uh, uh, you know, put your face on saving face and um, that it's an old showbiz trick. And so, because I used to be in performance and one of the rituals that uh, of putting makeup on and, you know, presenting a particular appearance um while you know that's you know in some ways promoting an ableist idea you know people want to see everyone looking all shiny and um you know well presented it has become a coping mechanism where i will get up in the morning and i will do that because um yeah and sort of that's complicated too because then people um won't recognize that um, I'm not, sometimes I'm not okay, but I'm, I'm in this performance mode. But it, it does generally help me um, to cope. Very interesting. Um, but absolutely important to also recognise how the, the perceptions of what it means to be struggling with mental health or stress or, um, you know, social stress like discrimination and marginalisation, how that can be kind of hidden and uh, things like, you know, how we present ourselves. Um, so you mentioned the bearded lady. Can we talk about, I think you described it to me as a gender epiphany that you referred to in that poem. Can you talk about that? Yes. Well, there's there's a lot going on in that, in that poem. Um, it is inspired by uh, my late teacher, Anya Wolowitz, who was an avant-garde poet and an amazing uh, teacher. And she spoke a lot about gender. She was a staunch feminist uh, not long before she passed and before the lockdown, COVID lockdowns happened, she was um, reading uh, some of her um, work, uh, wearing a beard at queer poetry events. And um, so she would often perform with this beard on. And um, when she passed away deep in, in lockdown, um, it was such a shock to me that shock somehow forced me to really reflect on the idea of performance because she she wrote a lot about trauma and that that idea of uh, performance that life was a stage and everything was a, a performance of sorts and in deep in lockdown when when she passed away um i really reflected deeply on um you know what am i performing what you know what what is you know, about just deep reflections on life. And that actually really contributed uh, to my gender epiphany, how 
um, gender is a performance or a set of roles that we, um, you know, are conditioned to behave in particular ways. And that was part of what contributed to sort of that unravelling and, and, and the epiphany itself. So I'm sort of wondering if you, you can then explain to us, you mentioned before about being queer and the different kind of sub-labels also almost within it for yourself. And you talked about being, you, you said two different terms that I think I would love to hear from you about what they mean to you and for people that don't understand kind of what we're referring to when you say um, non-binary and also agender. Um, can you talk about what, are dif- you know, what do they mean to you, those terms, and how do they different, if, if at all, are they different? Yeah, so there's sort of, um, it's, there's semantics and I often get into debates with other um, gender diverse people about how these labels should be used. And the, the way I see uh, binaries, you know, in terms of gender are male and female and non-binary to me is anyone who doesn't uh, fit neatly into one of those binaries and being agender, not experiencing or feeling like I have a gender at all um, sort of pulls me out of the binaries, which is why I sometimes use the, the label non-binary. Yeah, so you kind of identify with both of those things, but sounds like they're slightly different um, for you. I, I suppose non-binary uh, people will still use, uh, often I see them adopting elements of, um, so uh, uh, dress or hair hairstyles that uh uh, identified with with a particular gender, and they'll sort of blend to uh, one or the other. And um, for me, I, I think more of I, I don't really do that, but I have um, you know feelings or around behaviours. So some behaviours, like for example, nurturing, is more associated with a feminine, or if you're more assertive or aggressive, that's often associated with. Um, you know, uh, the, the male gender. And so in, in that way, I sort of slide on a scale um, where I don't really often don't behave in ex- <laughs> the way people expect me to behave. And in that way, I sort of feel very non, non-binary, even though I'm not uh, as much playing with the uh, external um, aesthetics. I'd love to kind of go back to, we haven't kind of talked more generally about your work, um, but I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your writing in general, why do you do it? Um, what do you love about doing it? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I think like for most writers, um, it is trying to work out things about life uh, through that call and response um, of writing. Um, and for me, intersectionality has been a, a big theme. Um, my unpublished manuscript title was actually Strange Intersections because I'm very preoccupied with how all of these different um, aspects of our lives intersect. And I think everybody, um, you know, lives with intersectionality. Um, But I guess the term is sort of being coined more to focus on people who have marginalised intersections. Uh, And that's, that's been a big focus in in all of my work, whether it's poetry, short story, or long form, uh, because they're the they're the big questions. And um, I, um, I I write a lot about um, religious oppression in in a lot of my work uh, because uh, I grew up in a very devout family, 
and they um you know when I was younger I was being brought up as Lutheran and they had some really sort of extreme kind of interpretations so when I was a child I was told you know when you can't tell the difference between a man and a woman uh that is a sign that Satan walks among us and a sign of the end of days and uh so it was a deeply trans I didn't know what transphobia was at the time and I was quite a young child uh when when these sort of narratives were being introduced and um they sort of went really deep into my psyche and it is part of why it's taken me into my 40s before I had a gender epiphany because I had this such deeply internalized transphobia. Yeah. So the work often sort of explores um, the impacts that yeah, as a parent, um, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about because as parents, we naturally want to impart our values and our belief systems. And that's how we survive. That's how we understand the world. And we, we impart that to our children, but um for gender diverse people or, um, you know, gay and lesbian or pansexual people, those messages are huge, can be hugely damaging. And, and for me, it was really detrimental. Um, and so it's trying to work those things out, that tension between parents just loving you and wanting to do the right thing. And sometimes the, the right thing for some people can be hugely damaging for other people. So it's those intersections. That I'm really interested in yeah very definitely interesting and I'm sorry to hear about your experience growing up that sounds very um traumatizing thank you um yeah it it, it was um and it's probably not an uncommon experience for people in the um, queer community who have been brought up in religious households to to find that traumatic yeah, and can you tell us about how the gender epiphany then, as it happened in your 40s, you said, how that changed things for you, if at all? Uh, it it, ha- it changed uh, a lot of things, I, I guess. Well, well as well as um, losing my teacher, one of the other things that brought about that um, realisation was feeling attracted to um gender diverse or trans people so um and looking back retrospectively I realized that it was always there I just didn't see it that way because I didn't have the language and I had all of these overlaying um sort of subconscious factors that were concealing it from myself so um I'm still working it out you know it's not um it's only been a a couple of um you know a few years and so I'm still looking at what, what that means to me. And it, it's a bit mind bending because, um, you know, people say um, body parts don't equate gender, um, but often uh, gender diverse people will alter their body parts uh, to affirm their gender. So it's sort of a bit of an oxymoron <laughs> in, in a way. And so I'm thinking about uh, chest surgery, but I'm thinking, well, if I change to a flat chest, that's going to be perceived as male. And as an agender person, there is actually not really something I can do with that, um, that that won't sort of end up being perceived or fall into that either presentation. So I'm a bit confused about it, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. 
as this person that I never felt like a proper quote-unquote girl or woman that those labels never felt right for me um and in the recent years I've started using both um pronouns she her as well as they them and as a kind of tiny step of acknowledging that part of myself but it is very confusing for me to even go what is you know what is the label that suits me best and how do I um kind of come to terms with that and how do you communicate that and what does that mean for all the different parts of life as a a feminist and all these different things it's very um very confusing (laughs) yes I can I can totally relate and I think as a writer it is this sort of frustration where language is you know there's this love for language and uh language is so powerful in so many ways but in other ways, it's sort of quite inadequate because sometimes it can't capture there are no words for, for what you're grasping for. Yes, exactly. Um, and this is why we're having this conversation. But I guess just a little side note about language. I mean, it's not just related to that, I guess, is I grew up in Israel and with the main language there is Hebrew. And for those who don't know, Hebrew actually has is it's a gendered language. So everything has a gender. Every item has a gender. A tree is a male, a table is a male, but a cup is a female. And they're quite random. Um, and people are always referred to, like you cannot speak without assigning a gender to the person you're speaking to or about. And I think that is a very limiting part of that language and is a big part of something that I'm grappling with as a parent because I use that language um, in my home and I think also growing up with that language complicates things as well because people would always refer to me as a female in the language because that is you know the body that I was born with but you know does that match how I feel not necessarily Um, so yeah just another complication to that now you have mentioned the impact of all of this on your mental health. And I'd love to hear, firstly, can you describe or tell us how you identify? Because people that have mental health challenges, you know, identify in lots of different ways. Some people use the term mental illness. Some people use mental health challenges. Others use um, psychosocial disabilities. There's lots of different ways. Um, How do you identify, if at all? Like, how do you talk about that? So at the moment, um, I'm comfortable with saying I experience, uh, well, have trauma-related mental distress. And so the the reason I um, choose that is, um, you know, having experienced um, many different circumstances where uh, before I even recognised I had a mental health condition, um, that I was I was being treated differently by um, medical professionals. I was talked down to. I was misdiagnosed and, on a couple of occasions, even molested. So I had really negative experiences of the medical um, model, and so uh, in a in a, I guess an effort of self preservation, um, self protection. Uh, I have rejected the pathologizing language around that but I'm simultaneously still um, looking for for a diagnosis. So um, braving another uh, psychologist to see, see, uh, you know, and that's more about accessing more targeted support than the label itself because if you look at diagnostic manuals, um, 
the the, the medical language itself um, perpetuates stigma often. Um, it's very, uh, some of it's really condescending and sexist and all sorts of things. So I'd um, sometimes try and self-diagnose and then read these manuals and go into a rage and throw them across the room <laughs> because they were awful. Um, yes. Um, thank you. And I'll have to start by saying I'm so sorry that the system has done that to you and failed you so badly that's just unacceptable oh, thank you um i have found it really uh difficult but uh, because because they failed me so badly i um actually sought a lot of alternative therapies i, I got a diploma in hypnotherapy and um, all sorts of other alternative uh therapies to find ways to self-soothe because i wasn't getting this, the support that I needed from the more sort of clinical side of um, the health sector. So, um, and, you know, that, that was, that was a really interesting process um, to, and also in a way self-empowering. So it was sort of this dual experience of feeling um, uh, neglected by the system or invisible, but also um, being forced to find other ways of managing uh, has given me a sense of autonomy and a, a staunch sense of um, I'm not going to let anyone else, um, uh, you know, control that. I'm, I'm going to have agency over my mental health, how I'm diagnosed, who I speak to, um, because the, it's one of the most discriminated areas of health. Um, and um, unfortunately, um, people do need to protect themselves because it can affect employment, it can affect quality of life. Um, it's a well-known statistic that people who have chronic mental illness are more likely to you know, have shorter lives, live in poverty and be abused. So, so I'm, I'm sort of proud of myself that I found um, found a way to kind of wangle through <laughs> but but um I, I really wish it was different because not everybody you know I, I still built that on a, a measure of privilege um because I was I, I had money to to explore some of those things people who don't are very in a very different situation I think it's important that I kind of recognize at this point that I also work as a provisional psychologist in the system um, and I come into the work from a very, I hope, different perspective, taking into account my lived experience of disability and living on the intersections of marginalized groups. And also, I'm a big believer in changing the system from within, which is what I am hoping to do. Uh, and I am very aware and very um, passionate about changing the big flaws that we still have in that system. Um, and I take responsibility when I work with people to do the best that I can to not perpetuate the problems that we have. But also, I think it's so important to recognise how the psychosocial factors in people's lives like those that we're talking about have such a big impact on mental health and that's something that i see as completely lacking in the medical model both in psychology as well as physical health um you know people come to see mental health professionals and often get only 
talked about symptoms and symptom reduction as an aim rather than looking at how holistically a person is living and what systems they are navigating, which is something that I think we should all advocate for and needs to change. Yeah, oh, and and thank you so much for doing that. And I, um, I that was one of the and you can, I can hear that on your podcasts that you're a staunch advocate for that. And I, I think it's there's there's real value in working the system from the inside. And I'm grateful to people like yourself who have persisted with I'm sure what what may have been frustrating at times with you know in terms of education and how things are framed <laughs> yes absolutely and that's part of the problem i think part of the problem that we have in those systems is that they are very ableist and um there is you know they've been built by and for um so-called non-disabled healthy people and then coming in to fix quote-unquote people that don't fit into those those categories and I feel that by incorporating more disabled people or people with lived experience of various marginalizations that's the you know I see it as one of the ways to kind of change things yes well and a a lifetime project I imagine (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) and I would love us to go back to what you mentioned about you know living in a um in a household with intergenerational trauma and having post-war experiences. Can you kind of talk about that? Um, And maybe before we go on, it it might be important for me to actually say, to kind of start the conversation by letting people know, listeners, that I was born and raised in Israel as a Jewish person. I have family who are Holocaust survivors and family that have been murdered in the Holocaust. And I was raised in a very war-torn country, which is still is Israel, and with a lot of hatred and fear. But right now I have no hatred or fear in my heart for any person or any group of people is more important. And I'm a big believer in communication and reflection and collaboration in terms of how we can move forward in creating a justice, a more just world, and also in healing and in, I guess, creating peace. Kind of very important for me to say that I would, you know, I'm very open to hearing and love for our listeners to hear as well. Yeah, that um, I don't really know what to say about that, but I just wanted to acknowledge that that, that must be really hard to have lost family um, in that way. Um, I, I grew up in... Um, a German family, and a lot of um, people don't know that um, at the end of the Second World War, um, there were certain uh, camps that Jewish victims were released from, and the Russians that occu- were moved into parts of Poland to occupy it uh, rounded up German civilians and filled the camps, um, filled those camps up. Uh, with German civilians, and so my my family members, um, my my paternal grandmother, aunties, uncles, cousins, that whole side of the family uh, was incarcerated. They were shoveling peat in those work camps, and my my grandmother thankfully escaped. Uh, I I think because her children were sick, she had two do- young daughters in in the camp with her, uh, one of which didn't survive, later died of typhoid. Um, and so she 
she was on the run um, when she escaped with Russian soldiers in pursuit and everybody hated the Germans at the time. So she had to hide her identity. She pretended to be Polish and then ended up um well she ended up um with a polish in a polish family and um having having a son to the the um son of the family there and um with without a lot of agency so she was in a very uh, difficult situation and it took um you know and that's where my father was born in poland and eventually um a relative found her and when my dad was about 16 they eventually moved um moved into uh what was left of germany at that at that time so i mean that's a very um sort of butchered short version of a very complicated story um and but what that did was um you know the truth was very dangerous and so some of the intergenerational trauma um, could be around, you know, being honest. So sometimes there'd be situations, very strange behaviours, situations where, you know, um, say, for example, my parents would do something and I would confront that and then they would say, we didn't do that. <laughs> that never happened. So because there was this instinctual fear that the truth was dangerous and that was something that I recognised was directly passed down through that intergenerational trauma but what that did for my mental health wasn't great because it's a form of gaslighting, which wasn't intentional. But um... I think some people um, perhaps don't understand how our grandparents' experience can really shape our experience. And that's something, you know, I find that really incredible how I can relate to that part of you, even though we have such different and our families have such different stories. But my grand grandparents' experience have direct impact on me even now as they've already passed and I'm in my 30s. Um, can you tell us about how that comes into effect for you now? Like how does that affect your day-to-day, -day, if at all? What does that bring up for you or how do you deal with that? It's it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process. Um, and my, you know, my grandmother is even though I didn't know her it's a huge loss like being first first generation migrants and and not knowing really the family at all was this huge loss and there's a strangeness around how I even learnt about the um constant uh the the camps that my parent uh family were were in um was when I was pregnant with my own son I um I was spiritually searching and I bought a, a deck of tarot cards and my father said to me oh you're like my mother she when she escaped from the camps she was on the run and she read tarot cards at train stations for for money to survive and it was wow. this amazing I had I had not heard this family history at all um and then suddenly Up until that point you didn't know any of the history until you until that pregnancy. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Until I bought those cards, and it was this really profound thing where the entire um, post-war history sort of unraveled. My parents never talked about it, so that's how the story unraveled. And then I sort of became a bit obsessed about my my grandmother um, because I I never met her, and um, he said I I looked like her, I had similar interests, and so. It was this really lived um, experience of um, how we we literally can hold those memories or um, likenesses of our um, our 
grandparents without even without even knowing so that's yeah and at the moment it's still something I'm searching for because um in trying to find out more about my grandmother um uh I I realized that there were rumors within the family one of the family members that survived the camps claimed that um my grand my grandmother had Jewish lineage it's something I'm I'm still pursuing documents from Polish archives and I haven't found any evidence yet and um you know it's it's not something that I do very comfortably or I've you know it's a sort of I don't um you know everyone in the family says why why are you searching for that and I think it's this um for I think for a long time I felt so ashamed of German heritage that that search was in part fueled by um you know wanting to um you know mitigate this um idea of a, a national perpetrator um you know and I'd rather identify with a in the past I would have rather identify with a victim instead of a perpetrator and so for a while um my search was fueled by this shame you know but also because I was so much like my grandmother I also wanted to unravel this mystery um and so as I've in the last few years as I've moved through that journey um I've realized that you know the whole idea the whole concept of victims and perpetrators is part of the problem in terms of how um you know how these uh things come about and how um you know revenge is justified um and you know it's just a, a vicious cycle so um the whole experience has just taught me that the necessity to kind of move out of that you know that out of that binary which is a, it is a binary <laughs> as well yes it is uh there's so much that i can t- say about this but i mean the first thing that comes to my mind is how you talk about shame with being about german heritage and this binary between perpetrators and victims and it is so relevant to my experience i mean growing up the whole um story around the 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 birth of israel as a nation and everything else was around being victims of the holocaust and that's always been made the connection um <laughs> a very unbelievable connection really that um, has been perpetuated for decades from 45 48 when israel was born is the, basically the rhetoric in israel is we have been persecuted and murdered in millions and therefore we have to now be our own protectors and become as you say move to the other side of the binary not to become perpetrate um perpetrators of violence that's not what is being said but we are we need to move out of the victim in order to protect ourselves and as you say um the violence is being justified using this idea constantly and military occupation and dispossession uh is being justified because of that experience until today so Israel is still grappling with that today and now as i am i'm also a first generation migrant and so as i'm doing the work of reflecting and also looking at media that doesn't exist in israel around um what's happening i really see that impact and also um yeah i also think we should move out of that binary and i feel a lot of shame 
and fear when I say, oh, people know about my heritage because Israel is, I mean, in the present, Israel is perpetrating great crimes and reconciling that is so difficult. So I don't know if you have any tips for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I grapple with that a lot. Yeah. Oh, I wish I, I wish I did. Um, I think, I think everybody should be non-binary. See, this is my, (laughs) no, I don't mean to make, I don't mean to make a joke of it, but I, I, um, I think that it is those, um, seeing things in those binary ways that is, is such a broad problem within that drives conflicts. Um, and, because those situations are so complicated and um, it requires people to engage in the nuances and really listen to each other and um, with an open heart. And uh, and that's a really vulnerable and difficult thing to do. And in a patriarchal um, system that is not designed to accommodate that in any way, we definitely have our work cut out for us. Um, and I think the only thing that I could say is that, you know, these things that we're, these conversations that we're, ha- the conversation we're having now and future conversations, they're all drops in an ocean that hopefully will, you know, or, a, you know, a movement towards change. And, yeah. um, and I've had to sort of accept that because I, you know, um, sometimes I've, I've tried so hard to, uh, be an agent for change that I've, you know, um, pushed my own over my own boundaries or, you know, disregarded my own self-care because I've wanted change. But um, as I'm getting a bit older, I've had to accept that it's just some things are not going to happen in my lifetime. I can do my bit and that's it. (laughs) That's a very, very wise thing. And I'm still in the process of accepting that because I haven't accepted that. Now, we've talked about so many different things and I'd love to hear, Sonia, from you uh, as a way to kind of summarise our conversation. What does intersectionality mean to you? Okay. um, Intersectionality to me means um, two or more identities um, and their related circumstances meeting. So often, you know, adversely affected or marginalised people or within a person. Um, and I think that that's sort of the um, that's sort of the downside of intersectionality, sort of that that the, or the challenge within intersectionality that those marginalised or difficulties are meet, meeting. Um, but they're also, you know, on the upside, they're the places where people can meet and um, learn learn from each other. Um, places like this podcast. Um, there's a line actually in um, the poem that I wrote, uh, Lennon Cohen says, um, there's a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. And I was thinking about that. Um, I think it comes from an older um, saying or a spin-off of Rum- one of Rumi's sayings, uh, the wound the wound is where the light enters. And I see intersectionality quite a lot like that, that, you know, um, the wound is where two parts uh, well it's an open wound but two parts are meeting and that's that's the opportunity that's where the light can get in does that make sense yeah and I love that 
Thank you. And Sonia, can you tell people about where they can find your work? Thank you. Well, at the moment, the only uh, social media platform I've been able to manage and keep my mental health intact is Instagram. Uh, so I can be found on Instagram. Uh, my handle is s.v.plitwriter. Uh, and so any um, publication announcements or events will be posted on the Instagram account. Yeah, great. And I'll pop that in the show notes as well so people can just click on that. But yeah, everyone go and follow Sonia and support you. It has been such a great conversation, Sonia. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute honour and a pleasure. Thank you. Before we go, a grateful thanks to the City of Melbourne Arts Grant 2022 for supporting this episode and the entire second season of the Unmarginalised podcast. I would also like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced, the Bunarang people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. If you enjoyed or learned something from the episode, please rate, review and share it with a curious person in your life.